wonderful. And so if you're a guest with us, I want to say thank you for joining us. Thanks for being a part of this community for today. Um, I want to invite you to stick around. And the way uh, I do that, the easiest way to do that is this card here. Uh, You will find this on the coffee table, uh, not a coffee table, but the coffee cart outside those doors. So if you left the service today and you are a guest with us, I would love for you to fill this out. You go out those doors just to your right. You find one of these on the table. You sign your name on it. You put it in the basket. And when you do so, there's these nice, white, beautiful covenant mugs there. You can grab one of those. It's our gift to you. Because what I really want is to know your name. I want to have your email. I want to have your phone number because I want to connect with you and do anything I can to encourage you along the journey. Uh, And so I know that we have guests every week. I know we have returning guests every week. And so thank you um, for joining this community. And thank you for being a part of who we are. Uh, We are growing, and it is exciting, and it is a fun time to be around. And so uh, feel free to continue to invite your friends and uh, direct them to me. Because I would like nothing more than to have coffee with every single resident of this city uh, to make sure that they know how incredible this place and this community is. So uh, thanks for that. We're going to get started uh, after I dismiss the children. Children, you are uh, dismissed. You are able to go and enjoy things even more fun than what I'm about to tell your parents. Enjoy that. Your kids are dismissed. They're super excited. And uh, what we're going to do, because we are doing this thing, we're doing this dwell series, we're going to continue on with our series today. Uh, We are in week three of our series focusing on Psalm 23, and so we have talked about provision of God, we've talked about the peace of God, and today as we look at the scripture, we're going to talk about the protection of God, God's total protection in our lives. And today is about protection, and if you live in this world, you've noticed that protection is sort of a thing. Uh, It's a growing part of our lives. We feel insecure. Uh, We feel as if we need more protection. There is something of a debate that goes on around uh, firearms in our country. Uh, And one side says, I need more security, so we need more firearms. The other says, we need more security, so we need less firearms. But what they're both after is protection and security and safety. So no matter what side of any debate you're on, at the, at the root of it, what we get down to is that we are an insecure people. That deep down within us, we seek something greater and we seek a greater protection. And what we're going to see in uh, Psalm 23 today is that it is on offer to us today. Society is desperate for it. And so what we're going to do is just read Psalm 23 as we do every week. If you have not memorized it yet, my condolences. If you're going along with us and following along in the devotional that we have up on Facebook every day, uh, you have probably already have this burned in your brain. But if you need to read it, read it with me there. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And this is our verse for today, verse 4. Even though I walk... Through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your inspired word. God, I pray that our hearts would be open and that our minds would be uh, prepared to receive the wisdom of your word and the beauty of your word. Father, we would confess to be an insecure people, a people that uh, look to any other place to find security, look to any other place for protection, and yet, God, you are the only place of true safety for us. And so my prayer 
Father, is that we would be a people so secure in you that we might change the world around us as we become active ambassadors of your kingdom. So, Father, we give you uh, this time. We ask you to enrich it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is one of my favorite parts. Every week of this, I think I I say this is my favorite uh, week of this series for me. I like this one because everybody knows this line about the valley of the shadow of death. Everybody has on some level heard that phrase. You're familiar with that phrase. If uh, you're a fan of uh, gangsta rapper Coolio, right? Coolio was down with that. Um, And so it's everywhere. This is a phrase that has permeated popular culture that as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, And yet, we, I think, have gotten it a little bit wrong in the way we look at it as a people. We've all experienced trouble. Everybody in the room has been through something. Everybody in the room has experienced crisis or trauma on some level or another. And the misconception about the valley of the shadow of death is that it only applies to those who are in acute distress. Like, if you're in acute trouble now, then you're in the valley of the shadow of death. And that's not true. It's partly true. Because while you are in it, while you're in acute distress, you're also in it generally. The fall of man means that we all walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The theology behind this is basically that when Adam and Eve uh, choose to sin, and sin enters into God's creation, what God intended for us as people was broken. And that gets passed down, and so we inherit that sin and as, inherit, as, as that inheritance passes down generation to generation, you and I, rather than being born straight as God would have us, we're bro- born broken. The word iniquity, when you read that in your Bible, simply means broken. We're crooked. And so what happens is that we are all born in this not quite right state. And this is the state that is overwhelming our world. This is the shadow of death. Is that you and I live in a place where we can't escape certain death. When God creates Adam and Eve, he creates them whole and right, and they have life. And when sin enters the equation, death becomes a certainty for us all. And so humanity has been stained by that sin. Humanity is stained by that inheritance. And so you and I, if we have one certainty in life, this is the depressing part of the message. It's that we all have an expiration date. So the fall of man means that we all walk in the valley of the shadow of death. The shadow of death, like a cliff that you're walking through the valley, looms over. And so even though you are alive, you are aware that death will come. Life is lived in the shadow of the inevitable. And so it's not if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or while I'm there for this season. The the scripture is literally saying, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though I'm in it. Every day, every breath is another breath in the valley of the shadow of death. Let's see if we can explain it this way. Um, This is a college town, and so uh, college loans are a thing. Most people are aware of what those are. Student loans are a thing that most people need to get through uh, university. And then there's this glorious period when you finish school. You graduate from college, and you're out. And you have a six-month grace period greatest thing in the world. You know why? Because you've graduated. You're no longer um, having to pay money and do that thing. You probably get a job of some sort. And for a number of months, you have a job. So you have income, but you don't have any loans to pay because you have six months before they kick in. This is an exciting time for recent graduates because this is when you go and you buy all the stuff you don't need. 
um, and you feel really rich, and you're like, this is great. I don't know why I didn't do this earlier. And yet, that six months between graduation and the first payment being due, I would say, is the valley of the shadow of debt. Okay? Because even though you walk in this great freedom of having all this money, you can't escape the inevitable that that first payment is due. And so no matter where you go, the valley of the shadow of debt is over you. The specter, I would say, of debt looms over tomorrow in that season. The same is true for us in our lives. The specter of death looms over us. That even in your brightest, sunshiniest day, there's some awareness in your soul that I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Sin and death has infected the world around us, and the evidence abounds. It doesn't take long to figure out that this is a reality. You can watch the evening news. You can see that greed in our world, sin and greed, means that injustice is rampant. You can see that lust means that humans are trafficked in shop windows in Thailand and in Northwest Ohio. It means that pride fuels the fights over dinner tables and text messages in every single marriage on earth. Sin has infected the world around us. We live in the shadow of death and of sin. The valley of the shadow of death is then not a season some people endure, but the shadow of sin and death cast on every life. And yet the scripture says, but I fear no evil. And so we move from the depressing to the hopeful, but I fear no evil. Why? David says, I fear no evil because you are with me. As he speaks to the good shepherd, as he speaks to the Lord, he says, I don't fear evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this is true comfort. There's something to be said for real comfort. Something beyond a a moment here or a moment there. There's true comfort, David is saying, in the presence of the Lord, you are with me, and I'm therefore comforted. When uh, my seven-year-old Bella was, I don't know, three, four, maybe five, uh, we were at Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is everywhere in Texas. I I think there's one in Perrysburg. Chick-fil-A is the favorite of families all over the world. Mostly because as parents, you can sit in the Chick-fil-A dining room and there's this giant glass thing that cordons off children uh, screaming in their own little uh, kind of lost world. And so you can eat and then you throw your kids in this, you know, playground area and it's like sealed off. And so occasionally you hear blood-curdling screams and you go, I don't think that was mine. And you just go back to whatever you're doing. Really type, uh, awesome parenting happening at Chick-fil-A every day. You just have to go by. So Bella's three, four, five years old, and I'm on like a daddy-daughter date, so we finish our little meal, and I send her into the playground, and she's not like the biggest kid. She's tall, but she's all wiry, so she kind of gets pushed around a little bit, and I see this boy in there, okay? And you have to know, I got to be honest with you, me and boys don't get along real well because I have two little blonde-haired, blue-eyed daughters, and so you may have like a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old, and I am quietly sizing them up, making sure I can still take them, Okay. So I see this little boy in this Chick-fil-A playground, and he's five or six, but he's a big kid. And he starts roughing her up. And you know, I mean, the dad juices start flowing. And I quietly go in, I open that glass door, and I sit down in there, and I just stare a hole through the back of the kid's head. And he's not like punching her, but he's definitely starting the bullying process. And as a protective dad, I'm like, this is not going to happen. So he keeps it up, and I stand up, and I get real close to him, and, you know, then I I say something really, you know, Bella, are you okay? Do I need to do anything about this? Son, you know? And and on one hand, I'm trying to, like, make sure I can take the kid, because I'm not that big either, but 
part of me is looking out the glass window to make sure that this big kid doesn't have a big dad over there standing up looking at me, right? So I've done the calculations. I know that Bella and I could get up that plastic staircase into the slide thing and hide if we needed to, if that dad came in. So we're good. So I'm, I'm, I'm there, and then I see Bella go from cowering to confident. I see her go from uh, afraid to all of a sudden, she's got this. And what has happened is that the presence of her father has changed her entire environment. That while she was fearing this bigger kid that was bullying her on the playground, the presence of her father, all of a sudden, everything changed. And now she went and played without fear. But it required her to acknowledge my presence. It required for me to be there with her. And once she knew I was there, because it didn't stop when I walked in the room. It stopped when she saw and was aware and leaned into that presence. She fears no evil, for I am with her. What do you fear? Where is it in your life that if you're honest with yourself, you fear? You fear financial loss. You fear relational catastrophe. You fear status declining. What, what is it that you fear? If you don't know what you fear, look at what you spend the most time on in your life. And my guess is you do that because deep down there's a fear underlying that. If you spend, the mo- if you spend a lot of time on Facebook making sure that everybody knows how important you are, odds are you fear insignificance at your deepest level. And you can apply that to any area of your life, but where do you fear? And the question becomes, is God there? And if the answer is we have an omnipresent God that is everywhere and with us, then maybe it's upon us to turn around and acknowledge his presence and to realize that he's with us and we have nothing left to fear. When we were living in South Africa as missionaries, we lived in a really, really, uh, really rough neighborhood. South Africa, Johannesburg, specifically for years and years in the 90s, was the murder capital of the world. Uh, Really dangerous place. We uh, rarely went out at night, Steph and I. Uh, The only time we would be out after dark is if we were driving the church van um, from church to drop people off. And when I say we were driving it, Steph was driving it. So if you imagine my, you know, 100-pound wife driving a 16-seat transit van on the wrong side of the road, on the wrong side of the car, stick shift, um, in South Africa and doing it with ease, that was her. And so I got to play passenger, and it was a whole lot of fun because I had a chauffeur for a year. And yet it was so dangerous that at night, they would say, red lights, you don't stop. A red light means look around and hit the gas. Because when you stop, you get carjacked. And we're like, it can't be that bad. Happened to some of our friends. At night, you don't stop, you go. There's neighborhoods you don't go in. There's streets you don't go down because they don't have access points at the end. And so someone will come up behind you, block your car in, and it will now be their car. And so nighttime was a time of anxiety for us. It was a time of insecurity for us when we were out at night. And that was a place ripe with fear. And yet, the church pastor would send us with a protector. We would always make sure that a local rode in the front seat, not just any local, but a a local from the neighborhood, someone who knew the area, someone who could protect us, someone who had a little bit of muscle and a whole lot of street smarts. And what went from something that we would deeply fear went to something that we were deeply secure in. Because he would tell Steph before she got to the intersection, don't even look, just go. Or don't go right here, go left. And, And she no longer had to worry about whether she was making right choice, wrong choice. She simply had to rest on the knowledge of the protector. 
fear evaporates in the place where we're with the presence of one who can protect us. She fears no evil at that point because her protector is with her. And so when he talks, David talks about he fears no evil, he mentions two things. My, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And when growing up, I always thought the rod and the staff were like the same thing. And yet you do a little bit of research into biblical shepherds, and it's typically two things. The rod is a stick for fighting off enemies. It's a pretty substantial piece of equipment. And so the rod of the shepherd protects us from others. It's the person sitting in the passenger seat as Steph drives this van around South Africa. That's the rod. He's there to protect, to fight off enemies, to ward off against intrusion. Sheep from wolves, Bella from bullies, the rod is there to protect. The staff is what you typically think of when you think of a shepherd, the long stick with the crook at the end. And that hook is there to rescue the sheep from themselves. The staff of the shepherd protects us from ourselves. So the rod is there to protect us from outside threats, but the staff is there to protect us from our own idiocy, really. So I have two daughters, right? And you will get tired of hearing about them at some point. Bella is sweet and gentle, cautious and timid. Brixton is everyone in this room's best friend already, okay? Never met a stranger, not afraid of anything, doesn't know what limits are. And so while I have Bella, who will ask my permission uh, before having a chocolate that I already approved, I have Brixton, who will be found in the closet with the open box of chocolates and say, forgiveness? Um, Two types of kids. Brixton is the type of child that when you're uh, at a park, she finds the rock wall you're not supposed to climb on, and she's on top of it. She's the one, when you're out hiking, she finds the cliff and gets a little bit too close. She is who the crook was made for. My timid child needs the rod to beat back the enemies that she can't beat back for herself. My brave, a little too brave child needs the crook so I can grab her by the neck before she walks off the cliff. And so we are each that in and of ourselves. Each of us have parts of us that need God to protect us from the outside enemies. But we also need God to know us well enough to protect us from ourselves from our self-destructive behaviors, from the things that we do that we don't even recognize when we're doing them, that this is going to lead to trouble. There's true comfort in walking with someone who will protect you from even the threats you cannot see. There's a reason they're called blind spots. Because if you could see them, you wouldn't be blind to them. Which is maybe the best advertisement we could give to walking in community with other believers to being a part of something bigger than yourself, is that if there's no one there to point out a blind spot, you'll never see it. You'll walk right through it. If there's no one there that God can use to point out areas of your life where you're about to run into trouble, then then where will you find that? Are you walking with the shepherd? Do you have access to the voice that can tell you to be careful of the edge? Do you have access to the, the rod of the shepherd to beat back the enemies? that we like to deny exists in this world. We like to think it's a pretty clean-cut world and there's some good and there's some evil, but Scripture would be very clear that there is a spiritual battle going on all around us. And so for us to feel truly secure and safe, we have to feel it with the shepherd. We're all in the valley of the shadows, so what do we fear? We have total protection. Fast forward to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 14. And Jesus in the upper room, it says, While they were eating... Jesus took some bread. It's a familiar passage. It's the Last Supper. Jesus knows he's about to be crucified, and so he gathers his friends. They go to the upper room, and while they were about to eat, he takes the bread, and after a blessing, he breaks it. 
And he gave it to them and he said, take it, it's my body. And we had taken the cup and he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank from it. And then he said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. So truly I say to you, I'll never drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink in the new kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We're going to use this passage over and over in the coming years. And in this context where we are today, actually where I want to focus is on verse 26. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Remember, this is the Last Supper. This is a solemn moment that Jesus is saying some things that if you are one of the disciples, the evidence from Scripture is they they really don't know what's coming. On every turn, when he says he's going to have to die, they're like, yeah, but surely not, right? No, no, guys, I'm, I'm going to have to go and, and sacrifice myself for you. No, no, but, but you don't have to do that, right? And they don't know what he knows, which is the time is near and the time is coming. And so he sits with them at this meal. They sing a hymn in the upper room. And out they go to the Mount of Olives. And this is important. Because the Mount of Olives is across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. So they're in the city. They go out of the city. They cross the valley to get to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is setting up a new covenant, a covenant in his blood, the blood of the spotless lamb. And so when he drinks of that cup, he's doing something that no one has done at a Passover meal before. He's drinking the cup of wrath. You look in Isaiah 51, you look in Jeremiah, the Bible speaks of this cup of wrath that we poured out upon the people for their sins. And Jesus takes it and he says, this is mine. So they cross the valley, the Kidron Valley, which literally means the valley of gloom or the valley of sadness. And I've said this before, we will say this a lot. I think this is one of the most interesting parts of Scripture. The, the Kidron Valley is what's called a wadi. It's a dry creek bed. And so it only runs during the rainy season, otherwise it's dry. But the Passover season is typically the wet season. It's rainy season. And so when they have crossed it, it doesn't say this, but we can make some um, educated guesses. In all likelihood, the valley is then running with water. And yet the time being Passover, imagine you're there and Jesus and Passover is coming. And what happens at Passover? A hundred thousand Jews parade into the city with their lamb to be sacrificed. They take it to the temple and the priest bleeds it out. The drain from the temple in Jerusalem drains into the Kidron Valley, meaning that as the Kidron Valley runs with the spring rains, it runs red with the blood of the spotless lamb. And so the picture that we have set for us here is one of incredible drama. That as Jesus leads his followers, he leads them across a river of the blood of the Lamb to go and to pray at the Mount of Olives. The sacrificial lambs are being paraded in and killed to cover and atone for the sins of the Jewish people. As the true Lamb prepares to do the same. This is interesting for multiple reasons. Um, As an aside, if you think back to the Abrahamic covenant, I'm not going to go too far into it, but basically in Genesis 15, you may have heard this idea that Abraham was promised by God that his descendants would be as the stars in the heaven. It's a pretty familiar passage. They make this covenant that God promises Abraham that because of his faithfulness, his descendants will be as the stars in the heaven. That's the kind of Abrahamic covenant. It's one of the first covenants made. But it's also a blood covenant. So as you read Genesis 15, what you come across is that God tells Abraham to go grab a heifer and a goat, to grab a sheep, a pigeon, and a dove. And then the way a blood covenant worked in in Hebrew society is you would slice each of them in half. 
And so the heifer is split in half and put on separate sides of a walkway. And the goat is split in half and put on separate sides of the walkway. And the sheep and then the birds being too small are just killed and let to bleed out. And they bleed out into the center walkway. And what this was done typically in the Hebrew culture is that it's a promise between two parties. A, it's a really expensive promise. There are cheaper ways to make a pact than to go spend all this money on these very expensive things as sacrifices. So this is a real, legit, expensive deal. This is two parties coming together going, this is for real. You hear me? And they go, yeah, I hear you. And, and then what's symbolized in this promise is each one will then walk through the blood as a way of saying to the other that I take this promise so seriously. Let this happen to me should I default. Should I break this promise, may I be rent in two as this sacrifice is. And so a blood covenant in Hebrew society was extremely solemn. And in Genesis 15, what we see is God has Abraham set this covenant promise up. He sets up this blood sacrifice. And then right at the right time, it says that God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And then this smoking pot, this flaming torch, this representation image of God goes through the blood, walks the path by itself. And the promise is done. It's the first recorded covenant promise where only one member makes the promise. What God is essentially saying is that I will make sure this happens on my honor. I have this. If necessary, I will be rent in two so that your people might inherit the goodness that I have for them. And so you fast forward. After God has said, should it be required, let me be as these sacrificial pieces. You fast forward to Gethsemane. And there's Jesus in Gethsemane. And what's the picture that we have of him? He goes and he, he goes to a secret place and he says, I'm going to pray. The place is Gethsemane. Gethsemane actually means olive press, which is a whole other picture. As the weight of sin and the weight of the world begins to press down on Jesus, he begins to what? Sweat blood. The way an olive press works is the weight of the press, this giant stone wheel, presses into the olives to where they give up this precious extra virgin olive oil. And they skim that off the top, and that's what we buy in the grocery store. It's a press, and the weight of the press squeezes out the most precious of fluids. And we get this picture as Jesus in Gethsemane sits under the weight of our sin, and under the weight of that sin, he begins to sweat blood, the most precious blood. While he's there, he asks his disciples to do just one thing for him. He says, will you stand watch and pray with me? And over the years, I've read this, and you know what I always feel when I find that the disciples all fall asleep? Scripture says the disciples don't pray with him, they fall asleep. And I always feel tremendous guilt. I look at them and I go, they're just like me. Gosh, I can't even do anything right. I can't do that. I probably would have been just like them. And yet, what's being shown to us is a reflection of what happened in Genesis 15. That when we think we're going to have some part to play in this big promise of God, we think we're going to have some role to play in what God has to do for us. We think we're going to be part of the redemption of mankind. Yeah, Jesus, I'll pray with you. Part of me wonders if, if God doesn't go sleep. 
so that in the years to come, that 2,000 years later, that a group of Christians in Bowling Green, Ohio would sit and go, they had nothing to do with their salvation. They couldn't even stay awake. It is as Abraham and God, it's God saying, I've got this. And so Jesus is in Gethsemane, and he's arrested. He's arrested, and he's paraded back across the Kidron Valley. Across this valley, running with the blood of the spotless lambs. Begins a sequence of imprisonment and torture and death. The blood of the crucified lamb is then spilled for us, atoning for our sins. We have a new covenant. A covenant promise fulfilled in God. We were asleep in the garden. So as to show us that God alone will accomplish salvation on our behalf. And when we come out and we zoom out of this experience, what we see is that Jesus endured the darkest of valleys to save us from the valley of the shadow of death. That you and I could not have walked through the valley he walked through. You and I could not have withstood the pain that he withstood. You and I could not have atoned for the sins of our own life. And so Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death so that we would have no death. He endured pure evil so that we would not need to fear evil ever again. His death eliminates the shadow of death upon our lives. His resurrection means we can live eternally with him. And so that while in our flesh we still live in this shadow and certain death will come, we know that as believers death is not the end. That death is no longer our finishing place. That death is simply a passing from this life to the next. And as believers, scripture is clear that we are living in eternity now. We are part of the redemptive force of this planet now. And so we do not have to wait for the valley to be over. We begin to live in the kingdom of God today. God loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not perish. The most familiar verse in the New Testament, the one that's going to be held up at football games all fall long. John three sixteen. When we read it, we read it anew. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. There is no more death. And so we get to sing, oh death, where is your sting? Knowing that the answer of the question is, Jesus has paid it all. The reason we walk the valley of the shadow of death, the reason we can walk through life without fear of all evils that come our way, or even death itself that waits for all of us, the reason we do this is because Jesus has walked the valley before us, and Jesus has made a way. I would say Jesus endured the true valley of death So we might walk this life in the shadow without fear. Jesus makes us new. Jesus fulfills the promise. And then Jesus sets us free. So like children on the playground, we're no longer bullied by the inevitable. We're no longer bullied by the fears that we carry, by the insecurity that we bring into our everyday. That if we rest in the presence of the Father, there is something greater that can happen. We're freed from fear. And daily we can wake up and sing hallelujah when there was no other way the lamb has overcome. And if we get that, if we get it here and it penetrates here, then what we have is the ability to live it out here. Because there is a world that has not heard the truth. There is a world that is paralyzed by fear and insecurity. There is a world that is desperate to know of the truth that you and I have been given by the work of the Lamb. 
And so I wonder what we might do if we were truly freed. If we truly felt the freedom of our Father and His presence in our lives. We would play differently on the playground of life, wouldn't we? There would be more joy. We would exhibit more love. We would serve freely. We would worship freely. We would grace people freely. We would disagree in a whole new way with others. Because my daddy's here. Because my father is here. Because I have nothing left to fear. Because when there was no other way, he sent his son and I'm free. And so I don't have to fear that loving you may create retribution. I don't have to fear that giving you grace is going to somehow penalize me. God's got me covered. So what would it look like for us to live that out? Over the course of the next couple of songs, I want to invite you to come. We have the bread and the juice. I want to invite you to come and to take the bread. And to consider, you and I who know Jesus, as we remember what it is that he's done for us, what would it look like to make him known? with the freedom he's given us, the freedom from fear and the freedom from insecurity? How would it change the way you interact with your neighbor? How would it change the way you interact with a coworker, With the person across the street who has the political sign in their yard that you don't agree with? How would it change the way, the freedom to live and love like Jesus without fear? So if you're a follower of Christ, that's my invitation to you today as you take the communion. To consider and remember what he's done for us and ask the question, how does it change the way I live? If you're not a follower of Christ yet, there's no pressure. You don't have to get up and you don't have to take it and fake it and try to figure it out. You feel totally comfortable to sit. My prayer for you, if you're in this room and you say, you know what, I'm not there yet, is that you would sit under the words being sung. You would study the words on the screen and consider the claim to truth that's being made in front of you that we serve a God who knew we needed a way and rather than leave us hanging provided that way so that we might know him and then make him known around the world let's pray Heavenly Father you are astounding in your goodness in your majesty Father, your word astounds me and your promise to Abraham, how you said, I've got this. And in my pride, Father, I would confess, we would confess that we spend more days than not attempting to earn our salvation back from you. Attempting to be good enough, to be strong enough, to be right enough. And yet, Father, we read that in the garden we are those disciples. We are asleep and you are busy saving us anyway. And so, Father, in our humility, find us in a place of total dependence on you. May your grace overwhelm us and may your goodness overflow in us. Not so that we might hoard the goodness of your salvation, but that we might share the life you've given us with those around us that are still in the valley of the shadow of death and don't see the hope on the other side. Father, let us be aware and then let us act, not for our glory, but for yours. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' holy and saving name. Amen.